when I was in high school in the foster home in which I was raised came another young man to live with us. His name was Don English. Don English is with the Lord. But he was probably the closest thing that I had to a brother in my entire life. I had two natural brothers and two foster brothers, but Don and I got to be very close. We were basically the same age. His mother had multiple sclerosis like mine, and we shared that in common. When he came to our home, he was not a believer. But I remember having many conversations with him about Christ. I remember my foster father having conversations with him as well. And I'll never forget the day when he cried out to the Lord and asked the Lord to be his own personal Savior. And he became not only a foster brother, but a dear brother in Christ. When we moved from Colorado to North Carolina, he did not come with us. He remained back in Colorado. His mother was still alive, and he was able to continue to be out there with her. When he graduated from high school, he began to attend the same university that I was attending. And we rented an apartment together, and we shared it. He was working his job. I was working my job. His job was in the middle of the night. He would go and clean Hardy's restaurants after they had closed. One of them 30 miles away, and once the work was completed, he would drive back to Greenville, South Carolina, where we lived. But one morning, he didn't return. And I went to church that morning with my wife, Jill, she and I were dating at the time, and it was after that service that I had an usher come up to me in an auditorium that had about 5,000 people in it and asked me to go to the back of the stage. And immediately, I knew that something had happened to my brother. When I got in the back, the preacher that morning informed me that my foster brother, Don, was killed in an automobile wreck that morning. He had fallen asleep driving home. And he left this world and he entered the presence of God. And my heart was broken. And I went back to the apartment that we were sharing in grief. And I went back to where he slept, and there on a little nightstand next to his bed was a little stack of cards, about two inches by three inches, and he would always write memory verses on them that he was working on for his classes, and I will never forget the top card, the first card that I saw, and I picked it up. And it was a verse from 
1 John chapter 1. And that verse spoke of Christ, but it ended with, Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And my heart was comforted because I knew that my brother was truly having fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that someday, too, I would be in the presence of God. Someday, too, I would be reunited with my brother. And I can just picture what that reunion is going to be like. The last time that I saw him alive on earth, I'd been working at a car wash, and uh, he was too. That light night, it was a uh, Saturday night, I had an extension ministry that I was on, used to drive to a little town south of Greenville, a little town called Anderson, South Carolina, and I would do street preaching. Matter of fact, I learned how to preach out on the street. And that night I was going, but I didn't have any money. And so I drove to the car wash, and my brother saw the car drive up, and he came out to greet me, and I'll never forget that greeting. His arms were spread wide open just like this, and he was just laughing just like this. He probably knew why I was coming. He told me he didn't have much money, but... uh, He said, I've got a few dollars. And he gave me the few dollars he had that night so I could buy a sandwich. Someday, he'll greet me again. And his arms will be open wide. But there is one that I long to see. And that is Christ. And I wonder today if we are really fellowshipping with him. I wonder today how Christ would evaluate our church family. I wonder if we share in his cause. I wonder if we long to linger with him. I I wonder if we actually have conversations with him in private when no one else is around. I would dare say that probably the reason that God's people can't pray publicly is because they don't pray privately. And they've not developed that close relationship with Christ where that they know that he is present. And they intend to speak to him, whether it's quietly or out loud when no one else is around, begging in their heart to know who the Lord is, what he is like, in order that they might come to know who God the Father is. I wonder if we have those conversations with the Lord. I I wonder if we actually spend time in the word that he's given to us. We might not hear his audible voice this side of glory. 
but we do have his written word. And he is the one that the Bible is all about. So I wonder if we're seeking the Lord, if we're getting to know the Lord, if our heart is turned toward him, if we are given to his cause. I wonder if that's true about my life, and I wonder if it's true about yours. It is time for each one of us to really assess the true condition that we are in. And this letter, this final of the seven letters that we have been studying together is before us. A letter that was written to Laodicea, one of the seven churches. And there is absolutely nothing good that the Lord can say about this church. Two of the churches he commends. There's no criticism for Smyrna, no criticism for Philadelphia, but when you look at the other churches, you discovered as we studied them that Ephesus was on the brink of judgment because it had left its first love. It was doctrinally sound, but the love for Christ had disappeared. They settled in on their creeds, but the love was gone. Pergamos was on the verge of judgment because it was tolerating sin in its midst. It was almost glorifying the disobedience of people. Thyatira had full-blown compromise with evil, and sin was advocated. Sardis was just dead. But here we are with the believers and the church of Laodicea. And we read that little letter. And John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, would write this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is what that word says. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are. What a contrast. You say, and yet you do not know that you are. You're wretched, you're miserable, and poor, 
and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. From this letter comes a scene from a very famous painting. Painting that was made by a man by the name of William Hunt. And as you can see, it is the picture of Christ standing at the door and knocking. No handle on the outside, the handle's on the inside. And the invitation of this painting is that those on the inside are the only ones that can open the door and invite Christ in. Many times this text is used as an evangelistic text to invite people to open up their life, to open up their heart and invite Christ to come in that he might dine with them. And yet I believe that there is something even more important here. There is no doubt a scene of hospitality in this letter. The scene is an invitation to invite Christ to come in, to fellowship with him. They had three different meals in that day. They had a breakfast meal that was basically a piece of toast that was dipped in wine and eaten. And then they'd have an afternoon snack, eaten anywhere they were along the side of the road at the edge of their work. But the meal that meant the most to them was the evening meal at the end of the day when the work was done. And the guests would gather around the table and they would eat together and they would tarry long and they would have conversations with one another. And it is that third meal of the day that the Lord says that he's knocking on the door, waiting for the door to open so that we would invite him in and sit down and tarry with him and fellowship with him. 
And that is why I spoke of fellowshipping with the Lord. Do you fellowship? What a word for this city, the city of Laodicea. These are the present ruins of this city. And if you look in the upper left middle of this picture, you'll see white minerals from a little city called Hierapolis. And if you look to the right of the screen, about at the base of the mountains, off in the distance, you'll see another city with its ruins. And it is the city of Colossae. The city to which Paul would write the letter Colossians. And in the letter to the Colossians, he will mention the city of Hierapolis. And he will also mention Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was founded by a Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus II. And when he began this city, he named it after his wife, Laodice. He later divorced that wife, but the city kept the name. Located, I mentioned, close to Colossae, close to Hierapolis. It was literally on the end of a major trade route that came out of the city of Ephesus, tracing its way through all of the cities that we've seen so far. And then that trade route from from west to east would then head toward the east. It would go into Syria. It would go over to the regions of China and India. And all of the trade that developed in the Far East, that trade route went right through the city of Laodicea. And then there was a major south-to-north route as well. And so it sat right in the crossroads of one of the most important sections in Asia Minor. And it was known for its wealth, its banking. One of the wealthiest cities in that region. And it received its wealth from its trade. Surrounding the city, the walled city, were plains that were covered with black sheep, blackened wool sheep. And the wool from those black sheep were so famous that the garment industry in Laodicea was known around the world. And people would seek the tunics that were made in Laodicea. Fine clothing, prosperous and wealthy. But in addition to the black sheep, 
there was a major medical school in Laodicea. Not too far from Laodicea was a temple to a god. And people would come from all over to go to that temple and find healing. And eventually they started a school from that temple in the city of Laodicea. And some of the most famous doctors in the world lived in that city. And they practiced in that city. And their names were written on coinage from that city. But there was an eye doctor there. An ophthalmologist that was known all over the world. Matter of fact, they used some writing that he produced and medical journals clear up till the Middle Ages. That city was famous, not only for the black wool sheep, but that city was famous because it produced an eye salve and an ear salve that was used everywhere. Banking, commerce, fashion, clothing, medical. Kind of reminds me of New York City. I mean, they had the Mayo Clinic, they had the Bank of America, and they had Macy's. But off in the distance was Hierapolis. And what looked like Snow from a distance was none other than the hot springs of Hierapolis and all the calcium chloride that was developing on the edges of these hot springs. People go to those hot springs to this day. They were hot. Now think of the imagery. I would that you were hot or cold. And they stand there on their hill and they see this in the distance, six miles away from them. And they could stand and look in the distance from their street, one of the main streets, and off in the distance, the foot of those mountains, perhaps you can't see it as well as I can up here, was Colossae. And Colossae was noted because surrounding Colossae, they had some of the purest, coldest streams of water that would refresh the travelers. They were known for their cold, pure water. Hot and cold. Laodicea did not have a very good water supply. Matter of fact, even though it was a fortress, and even though it was a wealthy city, it struggled with getting water to the city to take care of the growing population. And so they had to build aqueducts from the south that would come over five miles, over hills, and there was a siphon effect. They would take rocks three foot by three foot, and they'd carve a round hole through the middle of the rocks and line it with clay pipes and then hook these rocks together to form an aqueduct to bring the water five miles away into a city, and, and, and it would come into to a tower. And they, they had it pumping and siphoning so that this water would come in, and it would flow out of a water tower. That water tower is visible today. 
with its interior pipes visible to this day. And from that water tower flowed the water throughout the city of Laodicea. But let me tell you something about that water. It was not very pure. And over time, those clay pipes began to fill with the chemicals from the springs from which it came. And by the time it arrived, it was not cold like the water in Colossae. It was warm. It was tepid. And it certainly wasn't very delicious. I don't know about you, but I tend to like my coffee either hot or iced, don't you? And when the coffee in the mug begins to cool down many a morning, you'll see I leave a little bit of coffee in my cup. It's not that I don't like the taste. It's just lukewarm. And in that city, if you wanted to entertain a guest and they came into your house, you would make certain that the wine was either heated or chilled. And if you would offer your guests something that was lukewarm, it was an insult to them and to you as a host. And so the Lord is going to take the environment that they're living in, the medicinal hot springs that provided comfort and relief, and the cool waters over here in Colossae, and cause them to look at the lukewarmness of their water supply that could make you vomit and say, this is what you're like. I am the Lord God of heaven. Look at how you're treating me. I want a fellowship with you. This was a church that didn't have fellowship with the Lord. This was a church that had the Lord on the outside knocking on the door to come in. And to them, he must identify himself in three ways. I am the amen. This term is used in Isaiah chapter 55, 65 and verse 15 of God himself. God in that verse in our English is called the God of truth, but literally in the Hebrew, he is the God of the amen. He is God the amen. That's who he is. And you can recall that the Lord Jesus Christ, many a time in the gospel, would begin what he was going to say using the expression, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's the same expression. Amen, amen, I say unto you. We use the term amen at the end of our prayers, don't we? When you say amen, what are you, what are you really saying? I agree, so be it. This is true. I'm with you. And the Lord Jesus wants his people to know that he is God the Amen. That's who he is. 
And he's not only that, the text says he is the faithful and true witness. Do you know that we know what we know about God through God's revelation? We have the natural revelation of nature. We have the revelation of his law in our heart. We have the revelation of God in the word of God, but the greatest revelation that has ever come to us is the person and the work of Christ. He has witnessed to everything that he has heard from the Father. That's what he said. He said, none of us have gone up to glory and then come down here to testify to humanity, but there is one who did. There is one who left glory and the sight of the Father to come down here and give to us the knowledge of the Father. And he shared the word of the Father. He is faithful. Would we know who God is? Then, my friends, we must listen to the one who is the true and faithful witness. Why is he outside of our door? He's the amen. Why does he have to knock as we sit within? But can we comprehend when it tells us that he is the beginning of the creation of God? Now, that does not mean that he is the first one that God created. There are religions out there that teach that. What the text is saying is that he is the originator of creation. He is the author of creation. He is the one that began the creation of God. And the creation of God is attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ in so many passages of the book. And matter of fact, the book of Colossians is going to focus on this. For there was a heresy that had crept into the church in the town of Colossae that Paul has to deal with. And certainly that heresy in Colossae, just 10 miles away on a trade route, had made its way into the city of Laodicea. And the answer to that heresy is the book of Colossians for Laodicea. And that is why Paul told the Colossian believers, make certain that this letter is read to the believers in Laodicea. And in that book of Colossians, you'll see that he is indeed the very image of God and that he is the creator of all things. The deity of Jesus Christ is all over the Word of God. We are not inviting a mere man to come and fellowship with us. We are inviting the one who made heaven and earth, the one who is God, the Amen, God the Son standing at a door pleading to fellowship with us? He's offended. How many churches this hour deny the deity? Of Jesus Christ. That's not one of his churches. Any warped view of Christ 
regardless of what church it is found in, is offensive to the Creator. And a church like that and a life like that will get the same evaluation from the Lord. He is ready to vomit them out of his mouth. But I'm amazed at the false assessment of the people. Maybe the same assessment that we have of our own life. And I'm moved by the expression, you say, but you don't know. You say that you're rich. You have all this wealth. You're the banking center of Asia Minor. But you don't realize how poor you are. You are spiritually poor. Spiritual poverty. You say that you have the finest wool garments sought after by the entire world, but you do not know that you're literally naked in the sight of God, and you've not been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and there are no practical deeds of obedience that you're wearing as white raiment. And you will boast in your eye ointment and your medical schools but you don't realize that you're spiritually blind and cannot see truth. So the Lord has advice for us. He has advice for people that are like that, and his advice is buy from me. The key is to buy from him. For our Lord has everything that the church really needs to function. He alone possesses them. And the distractions of a world in which we live, the wealth around us, the fashion around us, the medical accomplishments around us, the glitz, the glamour, all of that distracts us and we're not fellowshipping with the Lord. But buy of me. What do I buy of him? He says, buy of me the gold that's been refined by the fire. And as you study that whole concept in the Word of God, you discover that it's a reference to a faith. Faith is more precious than gold that's been what? Tried in the fire. That's what Peter writes. Do you know the most important thing that you and I can do as people? The most important thing we can do is to believe God. Do you believe God? Are you living a life of faith? Do you really believe that that book is a revelation from God and He's communicated to us? And that you will stand on that book as the culture crashes around you today? Is your faith in God? Or are you being disturbed by all the woke culture that is flowing like a river in this country? That literally is challenging 
anything and everything that you find revealed in that book. What do you consider to be valuable of great wealth? It's believing God. But there is something greater than being clothed with the finest black wool tunic. And it is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To have that dress wrapped around you because if you wear that, you will enter the presence of God and fellowship with Him forever. And in addition to that, the white raiments that are found here are said to be the righteousness of the saints. Well, it is the imputed righteousness of Christ. But do you realize, my friend, that when the Lord left us, He said that we were to make disciples of Him. I am to look at all of you, and I have to ask myself the question, am I pastoring and shepherding a group of people whose intent is to follow Christ in obedience. That is the command, to follow him in obedience. Learning to do what pleases him, having about us the practical righteousness of obedience. And this is different. I don't know how to explain this to you. But 50, 60 years ago, the church growth movement began. Led by people like Robert Schuller of the Christ Cathedral. Followed by many saints. And they basically came out and said, listen, this God-centered, church-oriented, is not where we need to be today. We need to change the God-centeredness to man-centeredness. And when we see people aren't coming to our churches, what we need to do is go take surveys from these people and ask them what we'll have to do in the church to get them to come. And so much of what is missing is fellowship, real fellowship with God. And a real desire for practical obedience to Christ and faith in the Lord. What we need is the eye salve that comes from the Spirit of God so that we can see clearly through the woke culture of today. Our culture needs truth. You don't affirm people in trying to convince them there's no such thing as truth. How many genders are there? There's two. Male and female. We need to bring truth to this generation. And tell them that they're going to find their identity, 
not in their gender. They're going to find their identity in being created in the image of God. So whatever gender God has given you, use that gender. If God made you a man, live as a man for the glory of God. If God made you a woman, live for the glory of God as a woman. And all of this confusion has led to the mutilation of children. And we're tolerating this as a nation. Children being mutilated. And we glory in this and we call it progress. No. The eyes are blinded. And we need the salve of the truth of the Spirit of God for our generation. They need truth. And truth will set them free. And that is why John in his epistles always writes using two words. He says this, speak the truth in, in love. In love. You love your generation. You love your neighbor. You love these kids and people that are all confused about who they are. Thinking a gender change will solve it. No, it won't. You love them and you point them to God. What you need, my friend, is fellowship with your Creator. That's what you need. And He's there. He's standing at the door and He's knocking, ready to come in and sit down with you and give you fellowship. Those of us that have drifted from our fellowship need to understand that the Lord is a Lord that loves us. Oh, those whom I love, he said, I'm going to reprove. I'm going to rebuke them. God always rebukes us so that we can see our own condition, but he never leaves us there. He wants us to repent. He wants us to change. He wants us to be made whole. And it's very characteristic of God to chase him. Listen, I have been spanked by God so many times, I, I, I just... Don't know why I don't change more quickly. But I know this, he loves me. You know, it was hard for my kids to understand that when we disciplined them when they were younger. And they could not comprehend what it meant when I would say or the mother would say, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. Sure, Dad. No, discipline is not just physical. Discipline is instructional. It's training in righteousness. That is what discipline is. And our God is one who wants to rebuke us and to chasten us and to change us. And matter of fact, God's final punishment is to leave a man alone. you want that? you want God to just leave you alone? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Your God doesn't do that. But oh, the joy if we would realize today that we have an opportunity to share in the company of Christ. To hear him knocking at the door, 
like Solomon's song where the lover stands at the door and pleads with her to open the door. Open the door. Hark! My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And here he is as our lover, knocking on the door, wanting to come in that he might share an evening meal with us, lingering with him. I hear his pleading. I hear his knocking. I hear him saying that I will come in. I will sup with you. Just open the door. And when he comes, we don't offer him the tepid, the warm, We don't offer that to him. We will offer something that is healing and refreshing. We will offer him our fellowship and our time. And we will seek to pour out our hearts to him that he might know us more intimately even though he knows us intimately. And we will listen so that we might know him intimately too. And then we will wait until we are caught up to glory. And we have the privilege of sitting on his throne with him. Thrones in that day were more like couches, not single seats. He sat down on the Father's throne. He shared it with the Father. And he bids us to sit down with him on his throne. Can you think of a greater privilege than that? If you know the Lord, that's going to be yours someday. So I beg you, please don't be distracted by the culture around us. Don't be distracted by the wealth of this city, the architecture of this city. Don't be distracted by the theaters of this city. I'm not saying don't go to the theater. I'm saying don't be distracted. Or you'll go tarry in a theater, but you'll never tarry with the Lord. They had theaters in Laodicea. They had one huge theater that was built by one donor in Laodicea. That individual was that wealthy. Don't be distracted by the fashion of this city that I must have this or I must have that. There's greater robes to wear and it's obedience to Christ. And please, don't go through life without the discernment and the wisdom from the Word of God. For this generation... 
must see reality and truth. And please, listen to Christ as he says, be zealous and repent. Let's be zealous for kingdom work. Will you follow with me as we follow with Christ? Will we be known as a congregation of people that are fellowshipping with Him? Some of you need to spend more time in private prayer so that you literally have something to say with the Lord publicly. I'd rather you not pray publicly if you're not praying privately. But then seek the Lord alone. He doesn't come and dine just in my house. He dines with his people. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus.